Hola, bonjour, jumbo, what's up? It's your girl E, and welcome to the call where we have clearly gone multilingual and also where we hear from wildly inspiring women about their journey to answer their life's calling. So this week I saw a Sojourner Truth quote on Instagram that gave me chills. It said, I feel safe in the midst of my enemies for the truth is all powerful and will prevail. I think it perfectly describes a belief that I'm clinging to right now as I look around at the world. I got to keep believing that the truth will ultimately set us free and keep us safe and it will win in the end. So I like to surround myself with truth tellers and chief among them in my life is today's guest, Dream Hampton. So how to describe Dream? Well, if you Google her, you'll probably see that she's legendary in the hip hop world as a writer and social critic. And you'll also see a lot of celebrity names. She's known as your favorite rapper's favorite writer. And I really don't know which rapper that's in reference to because she was really close friends with the late Notorious B.I.G. And she's also really close friends with Jay-Z. She co-wrote his best-selling book, Decoded, and was the mastermind behind the New York Times top viewed video last year. It's an animated short narrated by Jay-Z about the war on drugs. She's also one of the forces behind John Legend's work on mass incarceration, But that celebrity activism is just one small part of her life. She's also a talented filmmaker. In my world, I just know her as your favorite activist's favorite activist. Every time I see a high-impact, cutting-edge social movement, especially if it involves Black people, Dream is somewhere in the mix. Ultimately, she's a person who's built a life telling the truth in a really matter-of-fact, fearless way. The truth about culture, about politics, and about life. We touch on all of that and so much more in this conversation. You're probably going to want to Google a lot of the names and topics that she brings up. And also, I hope you come away not just admiring unafraid truth tellers who have a fighter spirit, but with more insight as to what it's like to actually be one. So sit back and enjoy this really interesting conversation with my friend, the brilliant Dream Hampton. excited dream thank you so much for doing the call hi hi dream (laughs) we're smiling really hard right now because we love each other and i'm so excited uh, for people to hear about you and your life and your work um so for those who don't know i want to start with your name because it is spelled lowercase and i know that's an homage lowercase d lowercase h and that's an homage to bell hooks um and ee cummings and ee cummings okay so why 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 did they do that and why did you do that i you know, I've never asked Belle why she did it. I did meet her. So when I was 19, I was a huge fan of hers. Mm-hmm. I know that E.E. E. Cummings was probably closer to why I did it. It was just a humility thing. Mm-hmm. I think back around 17, 18, I started reading Buddhist philosophy. I, I got into these this certain school of monks from the 15th century. And I started reading about the um, false idea of an eye. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the false idea of an I. Yes, of a separate self. Uh-huh. And so yeah, that's how I started using it. So and you, then I and then you just get stuck in that whatever, you know. So it, you didn't just do it cuz it was cool cuz it looks very fly. Like everybody <laughs> who I know knows well, you. Well, later like, I found out that if you don't capitalize your name in legal documents, legal doc it's a kind of protest also mm-hmm. and um there are ways to render them null and void or you're not a real I forget what the law is but there's some legalese around that too and later I found that out and that was Mm -hmm. funny too but yeah whatever (laughs) I love it I love it thank you thank you um so you know I'll get to your bio and all of your work um and it's there's so much of it and it's so diverse and so broad but I like to ask people um you know, if I had to ask you how to identify yourself in one way, like I would say, at the end of the day, I'm Tom and Debbie's daughter. And that tells you so much you need to know about me. Mm-hmm. I saw once that you were at an event and everyone who had uh, come to the event had all these long bios. <laughs> and you had one. Do you remember what you wrote? Yeah, I try to write it all the time. Uh-huh. It's filmmaker, writer, organizer from Detroit. Filmmaker, organizer, writer from Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I love the from Detroit because that's such a huge part of, of who you are. It is. Yeah. I remember one time someone was trying to gossip about me to my friend. And my friend was like, wait a minute. Are you from Detroit? 
And that person was like, dreams from Detroit? And my friend was like, get out of here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you don't even know. You've never met Dream. Because the second thing out of her mouth is uh-huh. that she's from Detroit. <laughs> you always talk about it. You rep yes. it. I mean, everybody reps Detroit hard who's from Detroit that I know. Right? Um, yeah, we do. We do. Because you have to. Why? Why? What is that? It's like Haiti. It's a place that is maligned in not just the dominant narrative, but amongst Black folks. Mm-hmm. You know, Black folks have no idea about the greatness that is Detroit, you know, and was Detroit and the legacy and the history. And like, you know, Haiti, we got our freedom super soon mm-hmm. and kept it and built power um, as folks boycotted us. You know, like, it's there's so many parallels. I often talk about Haiti and Detroit mm-hmm. as like similar, like free black nations. <laughs> so I'm that. from the free black nation of Detroit. I love that. We, um... <laughs> The show is called The Call, and and one of the reasons is looking at Joseph Campbell's monomyth that every hero's journey has at some point a call. Mm -hmm. And before their call to adventure or greatness, where they're from is, in his narrative, it's the ordinary world. So Detroit, in some ways, is your ordinary world, although you probably would never call it ordinary. Right. Um, And you know I have, like, big problems with Joseph Campbell. We'll we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. I want to know know what they are. Um, But this idea that there's a place that you are from that shaped you and raised you, did you ever feel as if... I got to get out of here. Because a lot of people say that that's a part of their journey story. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, in America, well, in the world, we know that people, the majority of people die, like way over 80% of people um, die about 25 miles from where they were born. Like, so mm-hmm. very, we know that like, very few Americans have passports. And this is a country where you have the great privilege of mobility um, just because of hierarchical white supremacist capitalist mm-hmm, <laughs> stuff. Um, but, you know, so there are countries where one doesn't have the privilege of mobility, you know, um, where it's thwarted at almost every step, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the kind of, like I said, hierarchy of passports, for instance. Right. Um, but yeah, so in America, there's definitely the myth of um, movement for freedom. And I probably bought into that. But more than that, I visited, like, my high school class did that cornball thing that you do when you're a senior. Like, you go to Florida on some, Oh, like a trip. Yeah, we did ours trip. was Ocean City. Was exactly. Ocean City. Yep. <laughs> and um, I'm sure West Coast folks go somewhere. But I was in Detroit. You were on the East. You were in D.C. And uh-huh. so, yeah, you go to Florida. And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> going with y'all. Wait, you didn't go? No, I didn't go. <laughs> Child, please. <laughs> so I went to New York. And um, a place that had loomed large in my imagination. And when I got there, I felt, for the first time, something I would feel throughout my life, but I felt in my power. Mm. And it was so um, physical. And in fact, we were staying, I went with my best friend, Megan, and we were staying at, her mom came with us, and we were staying at her mom's college friend's house in Jersey. So I didn't feel that in Jersey. It's not like when I landed at Newark, I felt like in my power. Right. It was like we literally went into the city. I wanted to see NYU, so we were in the village. And I remember being in Washington Square Park, and I felt this like surge of power rush through my body. Wow. And I felt connected in that moment to New York. And it was a place where I built a lot of community power, a lot of personal power, mm-hmm. you know, on all kinds of levels, not just the the traditional definitions of power. But yeah, it was a place where I ended up rooting. I'm always reminding everyone that I'm from Detroit and always being as connected as possible. I would say for the first five years, I mean, when you're growing up, you are trying to get away from not just where you're from sometimes, but your family, you Mm -hmm. know, and your network of friends who, you know, may be on the spectrum of where, you know, believing what you believe in or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, or what you're beginning to believe. So anyway, I ended up in New York. Yeah. <laughs> and I stayed for 20 years. I went to NYU Film School and I stayed for 20 years. So it's interesting that you said you kind of felt and found your power mm-hmm. in New York. Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, I want everyone to read uh, Rebecca Walker's book, Black Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wrote the opening essay in it. It's called Audacity. And in it, you talk about an experience you had in your childhood in Detroit. And the last line of it is my absolute favorite. Um, and you say it's where you learned or that experience taught you that there was nothing you were too afraid to fight. Correct. Which I repeat that now over and over and over again because it's such a dope line. There's nothing you're too afraid to fight. Right. Um, what are some things that have frightened you, but that you fought anyway? Well, that moment, that was a moment, a really extreme traumatic story that I didn't think belonged in Rebecca's book. And I, 
told her I was that. referencing it because I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it. And yeah, I, I no, also want people to read I the remember, book. But. Yeah, Rebecca, she had a deadline and she had put me in the catalog. And I remember someone wrote, they were like dissing me, but it was like so true. They were like, this doesn't belong in this book, this old traumatic ass shit. <laughs> And I was like, nope, sure doesn't. I told her not to take it, but she's like, I have to have something. So it, was it was so good. Well, okay, so for people I mean, who it, don't I like know. it. No, I'm happy I wrote it. Uh huh. And yeah, for people who don't know, it's about um, an attempted rape. I and mean, Joe Morgan got me to try to think about it as rape because it was such a violation. It was so physical. It was just to think about um, the violence without the penetration. So I just fought off three boys like I was a Tasmanian devil. <laughs> so that I know. And, you know, and they're all dead on top of it. Wow. So this is just, you know, um, a time when Detroit was beginning to shift from a very safe place, which is what I had known it in the 70s, to all of the things that the war on drugs, uh, meaning you know, it's all, all of the things that I think that more than hip hop, my era is defined by crack. Mm-hmm. Um, the billion dollar kind of um, activity around crack, the violence of hypercapitalism, which is always a bloody sport, and the way that the policing um, and the resources um, by the government and the state that were um, put into so-called fighting that war, mm-hmm. um, what it meant in terms of occupying our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So all of those things were happening in the 80s. And, you know, that was my particular, uh, not that that kind of violence, gender violence, which is what I was attacked by three boys who, who um, pushed past, past my brother and broke into my house. Um, so that kind of work, gender work I've been doing forever, it hasn't always been that, like, um, straightforward like Mm -hmm. you know that this is the attack Mm -hmm. you know um it was later when i got to new york i would say you know i started talking about hip-hop and writing about hip-hop and that was always in some ways about gender violence Mm -hmm. you know and um quite literally like one of the very first things i wrote was about d barnes being attacked by dr dre Mm -hmm. it was the second thing i ever wrote calling dr dre a bitch and then um the violent, the different kind of gender violence, which wasn't always that, like again, as explicit and clear as me being attacked in my home at thirteen or D Barnes. Mm-hmm. So, but then the other thing that I ended up facing in New York, which um, I didn't have much experience with in Detroit, being an all black city, was the um, racial violence mm-hmm. that called itself like the NYPD or whatever that kind of terror. And that was happening hardcore in New York when I got there in 1990. And so some friends and I formed a chapter of Malcolm X Grassroots Movement uh-huh. and started doing things like Cop Watch. And so, yeah. So when I think about that last line and things that are too afraid to fight, whether it's the state, whether it's like gender violence, your own community, or just violence, period, uh-huh. I guess that's what that was about. Has there ever been anything that you regret fighting or or when do you make a decision this is not worth my time as a fight. This is not worth the energy to oh, fight. Yeah, that's how I feel now with Trump. You know what I mean? I feel mm-hmm. like I got way pulled into electoral politics in a way I didn't even allow myself to be with Obama, you know? Um, I worked on the Bernie campaign first. And then it felt like just trying to stop, you know, Voldemort from like <laughs> yeah. incarnating or whatever. <laughs> um <laughs> So, you know, and then whatever, like, fuck that. I'm not, that's never been my politics. And I just played myself. And so many people probably feel that way. I always vote, I'll vote every two years, mm-hmm. but I'm never going to act like this is the main gig. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's so not. Well, it's interesting because that for you, this election kind of represents the like, nah, I'm not fighting in that, that arena anymore. But for yeah. a lot of people, and in particular, a lot of women that I'm hearing now, mm-hmm. younger women, this is actually energizing them for a fight that they hadn't either seen at their front door before or wanted to acknowledge. Right. So what what would you say to young women now who are like, you know what, I'm ready. Do, are you saying, oh, I'm passing the, 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 the baton oh, now? Oh, for sure, or? no. I mean, I want them to take care of themselves as they do this work and pace themselves because... I had a couple of friends. I'm not a mentor in any way, shape, or form, you know. Says who? Anyone. But, like, I don't consider myself a mentor because I just don't have it together, right? (laughs) I was going to say, I think a lot of people consider you a mentor. Well, I have a couple of friends that Mm -hmm. I met in Ferguson who sometimes talk to me like I might be their mentor. And I have definitely talked to them about this idea of pacing. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, so you get activated, you know, it may be because Mike Brown was killed. It may be because we have a rapist who um, is going to be in charge of the gang that is the United States Army and government. And which probably isn't the first time the rapist has been in charge, but this is, you know, a rapist who brags about it on hot mics. So they they should pace themselves. Mm-hmm. They should um, be prepared for this to not resolve itself in a few years. Mm-hmm. I mean, particularly this idea I see people. I mean, there were so many fantasies and I had them. I had a psychic who told me that he wasn't going to be sworn in. <laughs> now the new fantasy before it was Electoral College. Uh, now it is uh, impeachment, as if we don't. There isn't a Republican Senate, right? This know? idea that something magical will happen. That there's kind of... any circumstances in which the the Senate is gonna, you know. Yeah. So, where in your life, or when in your life, did you learn that lesson about pacing, about the marathon and not the sprint, whether it be in politics or even in in the way that you you know no, live your life, organizing, making art, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, one of the very first pieces of wisdom I got was from Julie Dash. You know, I was outside. Um, she was screening Daughters of the Dust. It was probably my third or fourth time For people who don't know, Julie Dash is the, the amazing, director. like, legendary director, yeah, mm-hmm. film director, who Ava and a lot of people give props to. And she directed Daughters of the Dust, yeah. which is a real reference piece for Beyonce's Lemonade. Um, and so I saw I was happy to see it being discussed last year again. So I remember seeing that film when, when it came out. And my friend um, at the time, um, Arthur Jaffa, who was married at the time to Julie Dash, shot the film. And so I'd seen it more than once because there were different screenings that we were going at to support AJ and Julie. And I was in the hallway doing something and she was outside pacing back and forth. And I was like... Um, at the time, I already self-ID'd as being distracted. Like, I was doing too much, and I should be... I was in film school, but I was working and writing about music, and it felt like a distraction. And she was like, be happy that you have this other thing mm-hmm. because it takes so long to set up films, you know? And I would say the same thing about freedom, you know what I mean? Like, So that was a good thing, to like have more than one thing that you do and that interests you and that you're deeply passionate about, and and that you're practicing, you know, because I mean, I, you usually hear that's kind of counterintuitive or um, the, the wisdom about uh, aces, something is something, ace of none. What is it when you're oh, jack of all spades? And yeah, master, trades, of none. master of none. So, you know, that was really great advice that she gave me was like that the nature of film is to set up, get lots of money, set it up, find, you know, call and convene a crew because, you know, very rarely do you do that on your own. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all the things, right? So that was good advice. The other thing was just witnessing the burnout in the community, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah, just, I mean, horror same. stories. Yeah, yeah same. I mean, people. we've had friends. My best friend, Monifa Benzele, we were organizing Black August in Johannesburg. And she um, was at the airport, pregnant with her daughter, passing out tickets and stuff, and fainted on the freaking JFK. You know what I mean? Yeah. Another, you know, big rock in our movement um, had a huge heart attack, you know, and was still in the hospital trying to, like, organize, you know, some Jackson Rising event or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen the kind of, like, bitterness that can happen. You know, I remember Tupac and I used to have these huge arguments, and he, having been raised in a pretty... Um, radical, clearly defined kind of movement, you know, was mad that the promises that it hadn't fulfilled. I remember reading Ta-Nehisi's first book, Beautiful Struggle, Mm -hmm. and feeling like he was angry at his parents for believing in, you know, the Black Panther Party principles, which are just of self-determination and which are great foundation. But you come to think of them as false promises. I remember Ta-Nehisi's first writings at the Village Voice being kind of that curmudgeonly kind of um, <laughs> almost conservative, like a Stanley Crouch kind of writing, mm-hmm. you know? Like, if all Black people are into Malcolm X, I'm going to write a whole essay about how Malcolm X shit. Mm-hmm. Or um, one time, um, Ta-Nehisi, we had a um, boy that was shot um, in the projects, Lafayette Gardens, and the housing police had shot him. And that week in the Village Voice, Ta-Nehisi wrote this piece about his girlfriend, I think she's his wife now, being robbed in the neighborhood and how the police drove her around for three hours. So it was this heroic story about the police. And it, so I, I remember, to, yeah, it yeah, was like that. very contrarian. And, yeah, yeah, to be contrarian and to commercially. So that kind of response from movement babies, Panther Cubs, like what ta is, what Pac was, you see that too, 
So I had seen on the spectrum of things, like just straight up physical, like losing the capacity to do a thing, you mm-hmm. know? Um, losing a capacity to do a thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so then how do you, so for, for people, again, who aren't familiar with all of your work, it spans so many different um, uh, kind of mediums and genres. And, you know, you're, you talked about going to film school, work, mm-hmm. making films, being a writer, being an entertainment, um, and then, of course, organizing and politics all merging together. How do you then, I guess to use, you know, a writer term, how do you edit your life? How do you decide <laughs> what fits, what doesn't fit, what you no longer want to be a part of your story. Yeah, that comes with age, you know. And then some of it is just always thinking, you know. Um, My intellectual self probably gets privileged above my other selves, and that's something that I have to probably shift. What do you mean by that? So the Malcolm X grassroots movement, we couldn't get, and this is about principles too, but it was that this edit came about because we had a departure in philosophies. We couldn't vote on the national level on, um, we couldn't get it together to vote on an anti-homophobic um, principle. Mm. And so then that made it clear that, okay, this is time now to divest from this particular um, organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so things like that will happen, you know? Sometimes it's a matter of moving age. Like I've gotten better in my 40s at just saying no in a really uncomplicated and clear way. And... All of the things. It's so funny because, so Shonda Rhimes' book, I think it was last year, maybe it's 2015, I need to check, but it came out the year of yes. Mm-hmm. And so we've been seeing this kind of trend with everyone saying, I got to say yes to life more, yes. And I'm like, you know, I've been saying yes for a long time. I need to practice saying no. No, for sure. <laughs> no is very hard. No, her thing is about showing up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's beautiful. I tell people that all the time. I got, I'm Blitz ambassador from Ghana. Uh-huh. <laughs> good rapper, like person and just good human. We I happened to be in Paris one day, and he saw me on Instagram, and we met um, at this Algerian restaurant. And he was like, um, I don't know. He We were talking, and I was like, you just have to keep showing up. You know, you're doing, like, so well. Just keep showing up. And he put that in his lyrics. He has to tell me keep showing up. But, yeah, no, I believe that, too, what Sean just saying. Absolutely. I just, yeah, no, for sure. In terms of self-care, in terms of not burning out, in terms of also being to do things well. But I've not been doing that. My schedule today is too booked, and <laughs> I have this is a year for me to write a book that I, that's one of the goals that I have and advances that I have. And so I have to sit still. My mm-hmm. friend Greg Tate said that you write with your ass, meaning that you sit down and you do it. I need to remember that. <laughs> You're right, because it takes it takes time. And this is part of the, the editing your life to understand mm-hmm. that if this is what I want to be the next chapter of my story, I have to take the time and cut enough other things to get it done. Yep, for the, sure. The hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know people who do, my friend Asha Bandele, she wakes up at like four in the morning and she writes. So she can finish a book even as she's doing her Drug Policy Alliance work. I doubt that I'll not be able to do other works. I'm trying to launch a vertical and do all these other things this year, but the book is a priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel limited by anything ever in your life? Yeah. I feel, you know, I have the responsibility of parenthood, you know? So I have a tuition that I have to pay, you know, regardless of say I want to just unplug and get off the grid and <laughs> or turn down particular checks. Right. Like, that hasn't been an option for me um, and probably won't be for a while because now I see that, you know, this younger generation, their opportunities have been limited economically. You know, so we all this stuff is connected to the collapse of the empire, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the collapse of the empire is yeah, something you love to with, talk about. Yes, for sure. But with capitalism on its knees, your your generation and younger, you know, they didn't. So I don't have this way of like dissing millennials because you have to live like eight in an apartment or you're living at your parents' house. It's like, yeah, you don't have. It was flush in the 90s, you know. Thank you. Thank you for saying that because the narrative so much, and I'm an older millennial, I can't even imagine being, you know, 21 or, or, you know, Gen Z now and hearing so much negativity directed towards you about your lack of ability, um, you know, to move up the social and economic ladder and living in your parents' basements. And I'm like, well, we didn't create this, this kind of chaos or this environment. And I think in the narrative of follow your dreams, which is always inspiring and wonderful and people should... There's not enough talk about reality and constraints and kind of the social context that we're trying to thrive in. Yeah, and it may be about getting new dreams, you know. I mean, one of the things that happened in Detroit was that houses um, 
were burned down or abandoned, you know, after black flight. And then the wild started to reclaim it. So like there are parts, my old neighborhood is like full of pheasants. Like you can go hunting for pheasants. Wow. <laughs> um, in my old neighborhood, a lot of those lands um, were reclaimed by neighbors and made, and grew farms. So there's a way that the, the lens itself has to adjust. Sebastian Younger has this book out called Tribe right now. And it's about, and it's, it actually, I've been thinking about a lot as a lot of my friends have come back from Standing Rock. And it's a lot about um, how when the violent-ass European colonial settlers arrived on this country to commit mass genocide, they um, would end up in um, prisoners of war when there were exchanges. Um, something over 90% of the time, the European settlers wanted to go back to the Indian <laughs> encampments that mm-hmm. happened zero um, percent of the time when no Indians wanted to like go back, go back. to mm-hmm. the um, to the the camps um, that the Europeans were running, and so you know this idea of having to spend be in a an apartment like the the dream of living a single kind of life of solitude basically even if that is a life of like four or five people some nuclear family that you create um, may be one that we have to reexamine. I've been think I think about that a lot when. I've been talking about this for 20 years, quite frankly, because of the mm-hmm. narrative around single mothers. And so instead of talking about where are the whatever, like where, how can we hold on to some patriarchal fantasy, why aren't we reimagining family? Mm-hmm. And so in this moment when um, the economy won't allow you to have the apartment on your own post-college um, the, and you're living yourself with four or five roommates, why not think about this more intentionally and think about intentional communities that can be um, sustainable and that can be cooperative mm-hmm. um, because maybe there this is the time where we're returning to tribe um, and however you configure that whatever feels safest for you emotionally and um, physically mm-hmm. um, and I thought about it a lot with the Oakland fire you know I was thinking about I mean that's a complicated story full right. of all kinds of um, aspects but you know people the migration in this country right now is all about rent and gentrification so we are talking about refugees in Europe who are showing up because of war. And then we literally have like refugees in our own cities who are um, unable to pay 60, 70 percent of their income towards rent. And and so in our own cities, we have a particular kind of economic refugee. And, yeah, they tend to be overrepresented by like younger folks. But I think mm-hmm. older folks are facing this, too. I right. Mean, so it's time for a collective reimagining individual and collective reimagining of what our dreams are, what what we think the quote-unquote ideal or perfect life looks like, which is largely shaped by capitalism. For sure. Yeah. And which can be lonely. Right. I think that's the thing that Sebastian Younger was getting at. Like, these Europeans were used to having, you know, being cordoned off. Those New England homes are all about having separate rooms where you close the door so that you can conserve heat. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a house on Martha's Vineyard, and it's not the open concept from HGTV. Like, you have separate rooms for separate things, a parlor, a kitchen, and you go into your rooms and you retreat, right? And for the first time in their lives, they were experiencing what it meant to sit at the fire um, for a good par- part of the day, you know, six hours after dinner, like wow. having conversations. And that's what I mean when I talk to my friends who are coming back from Standing Rock, mm-hmm. our good friends, Wendy and Sean Carrasso, yep. Wendy Carrillo, who's running for running for Congress yes, in District 34. Um, so our, we have two good friends, you and I, right. who just came back from Standing Rock. And, and it's the community that has that fed their spirit, you know, and not to be romantic about this stuff. Sharing space on any level can be difficult. But the way we have been living is not the only way to live, and it might not be the one that works mm-hmm. in the future. This 21st century, we have to reimagine a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the 20th century, everyone wasn't driving. You know, it was 20, 30 years into the 20th century before people had cars mm-hmm. on a mass level, you know, um, maybe 50 years into the friggin', you know, 20th century. So, you know, the 21st century is going to look radically different than the um, 20th century. A lot of your work. Um, even even what we just heard now about you kind of telling stories that many people may not know, either from history or um, you talked earlier about what Detroit is. I would categorize a lot of what you do and what you say as being telling the right story or telling the truth, telling the true narrative or story. When I think about, um, you know, if somebody Googles Dream Hampton, you'll find so, so, so many things. But a lot <laughs> I of... I never do that. <laughs> you shouldn't ever... Nobody should ever Google themselves. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't. Um, 
And I know but, people do. I will Twitter search myself. Do but you? I do not. Well, I used to, but I definitely don't. I'm off Twitter. But yeah, I, I've definitely t- Twitter searched myself once a week, you know. But um, no, I don't Google myself, and I haven't for like five years. I don't. I don't ever. I never Google myself because it's <laughs> it's painful every time I do. But a lot of the stories that I'll see have involve you in some way reshaping a narrative or telling the truth about something. You'll see, you know, some of the headlines where the public said Jay Z does this around um, activism or he doesn't say anything, and you correct the the record, and you're like, actually, yeah, I actually, Jay Z, <laughs> you, you know, donated have done that. money. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> he, he, not just because he's mad or whatever, because whatever with him, but is. You know, I mean, in his tradition, he's right. Like, it doesn't make sense to yap about this stuff. To talk about giving or, no, or how, well, no, what your philanthropy. No, his, not, his thing isn't about just not giving. His thing is about yapping, period. True. <laughs> he's a drug True. dealer, you know? So that's that whole, like, you know, silence, the codes and shit of not yapping. But, you know, who knows? True narratives. Narratives. But yeah. I mean, you did that. You talk about what the real Detroit narrative about Detroit. Um, you know, the public might say what the public says or certain parts of the public and the media say the Black Lives Matter movement is run by one charismatic man. And you're like, actually, it's not run by anybody. And it was founded by, you know, these three women of color. Public, you have, you always talk about Jesus. What does the public say about Jesus? Oh, he's this long-haired, blue-eyed man. What do you say? That he's a Palestinian Jew. Born to a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, born to a single mother. So, you, so yes. that's a, a lot of... A lot oh, of did I your, tweet that? I, well, no, I've just heard you say it a oh, bunch yeah, and you may sure. have tweeted it. Yeah, but um, I'm sure I'm not the only person to say this. No, stuff, no, no, yeah. no, no. Mm-hmm. But it's just a huge part of your work. And I want to know where that came from. When did you figure out that it was how important it was to kind of have a true narrative or rewrite a, a story? You know, when I had my daughter I, and she came here so kind, like if I would give her a mean look, I learned this. I didn't give her many mean looks because I learned early on she's in the back seat. Maybe she had thrown her bottle on the floor and I turned around and looked at her like, why'd you do that? And her whole face just crinkled. Like she just started crying. She was so sad. that Not that I raised my voice, not that I even, I don't think I opened my mouth. I looked at her. And so I realized then how sensitive my child was. Mm-hmm. And then I learned how kind she was. Right. And then I learned, well, fuck it. I'll never be those things because <laughs> she came here like that. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And so I came here like I came here. And so I've always been that person. I hope I wasn't like a snitch, but I absolutely was like the one who would question the narrative, who was relentlessly curious um, and who could basically tell a story, I guess, you know? Um, and, you know, so that was just, it's not the like f- most fun gig in the world, you know. <laughs> uh-uh. No, <laughs> Wild Seed, um, Anianu. You know when you when we come across her in in the book Wild Seed by Octavia Butler, she is um, an outcast. You know she knows the village's secrets. She's been alive for three or four hundred years. And so part of her living outside the village is to protect her magic, you know, because people don't know that she's a shapeshifter and pretty eternal. Um, But the other thing is that the griot always had to live outside of the village because they knew, you know, you're not invited to the wedding when you married the last, you know, the man's last four husbands or (laughs) wives or whatever. Right. So, um, you know, you're not invited to the birth when you know that it's really, you know, the brother-in-law's baby. (laughs) (laughs) When you know, when you know the truth. And and it's not even just no, you know it. And more often than not, more often than not, you speak it. Right, like that's right. You speak it. Well, Some I people may know those things because I don't really care about gossip. Right, but right, yeah. right. But and and there are people who do make a living off gossip. So you know, more power to you, or whatever. But yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking out loud most of the time. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Malcolm is my like you know hero, um, and Why? not well because he stood up for black girls and it cost him his life. You know, and so he did that in a way that you'll still have people from the Nation of Islam or people who have any kind of. Um, who've been influenced by the nation in any way will still diss Malcolm because Malcolm learned that a man that he basically thought was a god was was not just getting these young girls who work for him pregnant, but also not paying for the children, mm-hmm. even as he talked about all this economic independence. And, um, and so he learned that he... Um, was false in all these ways and that he was harming, you know, community and um, the community that he had said that he was here to quote unquote save. And that would be Elijah Muhammad. And Elijah Muhammad was getting like 13 and 14 year old secretaries pregnant. And Malcolm spoke up about it. Mm -hmm. And that's what cost Malcolm his life. 
You know, of course, all the other truths that Malcolm told to America. But then also when it was hardest, Malcolm told the truth. Mm-hmm. So Malcolm died standing up for young black girls. And so I always remember, you know, so that between that and Audre Lorde, and I saw you put that on your Instagram. And mm-hmm. I said, that's one of my life mantras. I'm deliberate and unafraid. So I, and I also I don't know, like just like my daughter was born with this kindness and sensitivity. I was born without the kind of give a fuck gene around being liked. Do you, you know? know how many? Oh, my God. Dream, do you know how many people are jealous of that? <laughs> Because it, 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 no, and I don't. I I, I feel bad for people because you, it's, we're socialized, particularly as women. So this idea that you, and no one wants to be like the outcast, but I kind of wouldn't mind it or whatever. And half the time, the people who are telling you like you'll get cut off, particularly on social media, since that's been such a big part of life. I mean, Facebook, you know, folks, and it can be painful when folks unfriend you. I've definitely asked people why they unfriended me. And, <laughs> You know, all of the things. We've all been on both sides of that. But on social, the, on the other more public social medias like Twitter or Instagram, people be like, hey, done with you. Or, you know, like all black Twitter is done with me. I'm like, okay, so we won't, what, have our brunch date, our annual <laughs> you trip don't, you to don't Jamaica care. never met you. I know that they have gotten together and have had certain things, but I have a... And I get, you know, I have gatherings. You come to my house. Yeah, yeah. You have lots of friends and people who love you, but you're not guided. And new people I'm willing to meet and like be interested in. Absolutely. But yeah, no, I don't. And I get that women, like I said, in particular, you know, we say sorry too much. We say yes too much. And we do worry about, and I'm sure, I think early on, I'm not saying I wasn't born without it. Let me not say that. I don't, I didn't have a mother who encouraged a particular kind of behavior. She was kind of you checked did not out. Have, I didn't. Okay. She was alcoholic. She didn't get sober until I was 18. So in many ways, she was just checked out from that. So I didn't have like advice on how to do anything really. And then um, as I navigated childhood, I just dealt with some of our, our community politics, you know, and um, just found myself. I didn't even have to open my mouth, you know, to not be liked. It would be my name or mm-hmm. whatever, how, however people think about how you look or whatever it was. I So I experienced that so early on that it could have never been an ambition of mine. My best friends were always super popular. What, wait, <laughs> like, so being, being liked, you said that was never really an ambition it, of yours. Well, it wasn't a possibility. Mm, not like, you know, people get to know me and love me. But I didn't have that kind of straight up, you know, you you know, yeah. But it's interesting because it's certainly women, as you've already said, but I think just generally in society, we're taught that likability is essential for something, for success, for... Well, in this era when you have to be a brand, which is super unfortunate, and I'm not going to participate in that, but you have to, yeah, likability is a part of it. Like when I think of Francesca, when I think of you, like people watch your videos because we like you, not just because right. we like what you're saying. right. I am a kind of, I'm the kind of person I can actually just like what you're saying. Like I can, which means that, um, or like what you do or whatever. So, I mean, and obviously you can lean too far on the spectrum with that. I mean, this is the whole cult of like the abusive um, Steve Jobs type character, you know, someone who's um, brilliant. I mean, and I've met some of my heroes have been that way, though, quite frankly. I mean, I wish I wouldn't have met Toni Morrison. I've seen her be really mean to people. No, don't tell me that. <laughs> don't destroy the fantasy I have of Toni okay, Morrison. Okay, so whatever the fantasy. <laughs> like, folks, you know, just yeah. period. And so the genius who may or not be affable. I mean, I think about some of this stuff, but not as much as I think about ideas, you mm-hmm. know? And I didn't try to raise my daughter to be liked, you know? She has a thing that her quietness and her introvertness, we are always mislabeling stuff, I think, in our community. And so they'll be like, you stuck up. Are you that? But she's really just deeply shy. And I had that same thing, too. And maybe I was being judgmental. I was like, y'all ain't that smart. I'm about to talk. (laughs) (laughs) But so, okay, so then when is it important? Because there are these... They're not necessarily competing ideas, but they could be perceived as competing. On one hand, speaking up, telling the truth, correcting the narrative, um, you know, putting out the right story. On the other hand, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care if you like me. I don't care what you say. Well, I do want to know when I'm wrong, and I want to know when I could do a thing better. So I'm not okay. interested in, I'm not not interested in criticism. I am. Right. No, no. Right. And I am interested in building community, you know, but I'm not interested in strangers. I mean, Dorothy Parker has this great quote, write whatever you want about me just as long as it isn't true like okay that was, and that's where i was going with that when do you think it's important because i think a lot of um younger people and earlier on in their careers even uh, humans later on in their lives are trying to figure out 
how am I going to be perceived? And if it's if somebody says something incorrect about me, when is it worth me stepping up and saying that's not true? Yeah, when is it worth we, me? And we've all had to figure that out on social media. You had that thing where you got attacked by yep. the mob. I faced the mob many times. Sometimes you're like, I'm getting credit for something I didn't even do. I remember when the sister tweeted this thing about Pharrell and the milk toast ass album that he did with all these like <laughs> women who are basically the same color, yes. you know, even if they were different races. And I was like, yeah, this is really heartbreaking, which might have been hyperbolic. But then that became my narrative, like that dream came out of Pharrell because offended. of his milk toast ass album cover. He was on radio in Atlanta explaining and this shit, sub, <laughs> like subbing me in an interview. And I'm like, this was, I believe, at Vintage Honey, like this other sister that I followed. It wasn't even my idea. Like, what are y'all? So someone recently, I did Twitter search myself like this month or what year or whatever, because it's 2017 and somebody was talking about that time I came up to Rick Ross or whatever. And I'm like, that was, you know, um, Ultraviolet, <laughs> mm-hmm. who began a campaign that Ultraviolet I thought was right and just, yes, um, feminist, black feminist organization that I um, retweeted, you know? So sometimes, half the time when I'm like, trying to correct something is just because it's not even mine. I don't own it. I think it's awesome and I don't own it. I remember one time uh, Akinelli, I saw him, the rapper who did this awful song called Put It In Her Mouth back in the day. And my best friend, Kira Mayo, who was at The Source and who's now like... Um, she's TV One TV now, One, think, yeah, yeah, being amazing. And on this, she's always on CNN with her mm-hmm. fresh-ass frame. She's got these new black frames that are really boss. Mm-hmm. And she um, had written that editorial, not me. So I was like, A, I believe everything that was in that editorial... B, I ain't write that shit. Get the fuck out of my face. You know, and he was 45 years. Whatever. I forgot. Right. How, it wasn't that long ago. Right. We were right. in our 40s, both of us. And mm-hmm. he was like, aren't you the I was like, oh, my God. But when is it important for you then to actually take credit? Right. Well, yeah, taking credit is not as interesting. Then there are times when I have wasted my time trying to explain something. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, all this stuff, you know, I'm emotional like anyone else, you know? So I, some days I'll be like, I'm going to set the whole thing on fire. <laughs> right, right. And, and other, other days, days, yeah, I'm like, I'm not getting out of bed. And, you know, so there are all kinds of days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so before before we wrap up, I want to play a game that we play here on the call called Who's Calling? Okay. So I'm going to give you mm, five names. Let's do five names okay. that if they called you, what would you say to them? If they if they called you on the phone and was like, hey, Dream, it's such and such. I want to talk to you. What would be one thing that Ooh, you wanted to say to them? Story, yes, tell okay. me a story. <laughs> so I used to edit this magazine out here. We're in Los Angeles right now for Larry Flint. <laughs> A freaking wow. hustler, right? <laughs> um, my, I, I had my daughter and my friend Sheena was leaving Rap Pages. And so I came out and went to Rap Pages and she went out to Vibe in New York. And um, so I put Biggie on the crown, on the cover with the crown on. Famous photo. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Baron Claiborne photo. And um, I was trying to get Mary J. Blige to be in conversation with Nina Simone. And Nina Simone was living in wow. France. And there's a brother out here from the Watts Prophets named Amdi, who my friend Ishmael um, from Shabazz Palaces and Digwell Planets. He knew Amdi. I think maybe they used the Watts Prophets on their second album, Blow Outcome. And he connected me to Amdi to get to Nina. Amdi's relationship with Nina is deep and special. He rescued her from an um, asylum once, wow. you know, like walked her out of a place that was not good for her. Anyway, so we call her up in France. And I'm like, you know, I want you to interview Nina. I mean, um, Mary, I want y'all to be in conversation, like interview style, the magazine. And she was like, what are we going to talk about? You know, what for? I was, I was like, maybe you can talk about the music. And she's like, it's slavery. Ain't nothing, to, that's it. <laughs> Ain't nothing to say. And then she was like, and nobody in America even loves me. She's the only person who knows me is Lauren Hill. And I was like, that's not true. Like, I named my daughter after you. And she was like, what the hell good is that doing me? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I just got cursed oh, out by Nina Simone. That's legendary. That's legendary. It's, it's a moment. That is a moment. Um, you know. Okay, so this is how that. How do we play the game? Let's do like three people. Okay, let's do three. We'll give you. I'll give you three names. If okay. they if they called you, what would you say to them? All right. Barack Obama. I already said it. I was just which like, was you should have done something with your life. <laughs> 
Wait, what? I know. He, well, he what? said, I saw you tweet. You should have done something with my life. And I was like, yeah. We, the fucking teachers unions took their last stand in Chicago. I love you. I no, love you. The, no, I'm serious. <laughs> Do you remember? They took their last stand in Chicago. Leader of that movement, by the way, brain cancer. Mm. So again, take care of yourself. But yeah, I mean, he's a Leo, though, so he had to go for the big thing. But, the you know, the... the the local, I mean, and this is the framework. If you were interested in electoral politics, which I'm fucking not, then you would know <laughs> that it is a state's rights game and it's local and it's everything Grace Lee Boggs told us, an inch wide and a mile deep rather than a mile wide and each inch deep. Mm. You know, they denied him the right to govern for six years. He pushed through some executive orders in the end. He's never been the radical that anyone thought he would be. I knew that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was down with, um, who was the little uh, white boy who slept with somebody while his wife was um, had breast oh, cancer. Oh, John Edwards. John Edwards was the only one he was saying poor people in his campaign. So, But whatever. So, yes, that's what I would say. You should have done something with your life. <laughs> and I hope quote. that he does. I hope this little mentor, black boy mentor thing isn't man. I hope that's not the whole... The campaign that he did. Enchilada. No, he needs to get super serious. <laughs> Let's say... Your favorite teacher. <sighs> Yes, Paul Sporn, who died. Uh, he introduced me to Nadine Gordimer, the great South African writer, this white woman who's amazing. He introduced me to, in a deep way to Toni Morrison and Alice Walker. I don't know why in high school that hadn't happened for me. He was at Wayne State University. I got accepted to NYU. I had to defer admission because of financial aid. And I did my 101 classes at Wayne State University, the great school in the center of Detroit. And Paul Sporn, he was like an old kind of Northeasterner, Northeastern Jew, like heavy cords, maybe with whales on them, like (laughs) blazers with suede elbows. And at the time, I was going down some stupid rabbit hole around the nation of Islam and probably was saying anti-Semitic shit, you know, that I had Mm. heard. And I remember him being shocked, like like super shocked um, because I had been so, you know, engaged in class around this particular black women's literature that he had gifted me Mm -hmm. or women's literature, period, because Nadine Gordimer isn't black. And and I just, I regret that, you know, that being 17, 18 and thinking I had some shit figured out about how the, I don't, like I really might've read one of those stupid ass books, you know, just how people read right now, Ayn Rand without any irony. Mm -hmm. I think I read like one of those, um, super anti-Semitic kind of like um, Bibles that like Henry Ford used to read the whatever. It was awful. And, and I remember engaging him about it as if it was a real fucking thing, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And he, I just, his, I read now that I'm away from that, you know, and I'm, it was six months of like being like in some stupid ideas I I now see that his face crinkled, kind of like how my mm. daughters did. Like he was just shattered mm. that I this is what I was reading, you know, and caring about or thinking. So yeah, I would apologize. All right, and last but not least, twenty six year old Dream calls you. What do you say to her? Twenty six year old Dream, I would tell her that it's gonna be all right to move around. You know, I had a um, 26-year-old dream, had a two-year-old. And I was afraid that moving would mean some kind of instability for her. And so I say this to mothers all the time. Like, you are the you are the foundation. You are the, 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 the thing. You're the steadiness. And, um, and we didn't move that many places. She had a kind of triangle that she still has, which was Detroit, New York, and Martha's Vineyard. And she still has that triangle. She actually prefers L.A. now that I'm out here. She doesn't remember having learned crawled, having learned to crawl out here. Because when I worked at Rap Pages, I was editor-in-chief. She was here, too. <laughs> but anyway, so that. Just that mothers, um, you know, if you are, you know, privileged and lucky enough to have mobility as an option, like all those things about, you know, being at more than one school. You shouldn't be at 13 if you can help it, you know. Um, but she was fine and they're resilient. And you are the steady thing. 
I love that. You are the steady thing. Okay, so the last thing I'll have you say <laughs> is to our audience, if there's someone listening who is on the verge of wanting to step up, answer some sort of call to action in their lives, but they don't know what or how to do it, what would you say to them? That what Grace Lee Boggs said, which is that you go an inch wide and a mile deep, you know, that, um, and that includes working on ourselves, you know? So... Um, when you think of patriarchy, you can think of your own family and friend circle. You can start there. I know I absolutely did. I got into so many fights with the guys in my life where they're like famous rappers like Biggie, like being in the studio, like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like that should be, that should have been on a lot of the records. Like me in the background <laughs> being like, what? You know, <laughs> like, um, or like your brother or your, you know, um, so anyway, yeah, you take a big idea like patriarchy and you bring it down to the super hyper local, like your own self, your own, like when you close your eyes, who do you imagine your savior to be? Is it a man? Why? Um, so that way of like not being overwhelmed, because it's hard enough work to do the local stuff, you know, the hyper local stuff, which would include working on yourself. So I would say that. And I'd say read. I would say that um, a lot of these questions have been answered, you know, when we talk about, say, police um, violence. A lot of people are like, we need to have a civilian review board. It's like, okay, why don't you look, since this is a multi-generation problem, why don't you look at the many and talk to the many people who have had and tried civilian review boards, you know? So study movements. It's not just like study your history, like the near history too, you know? And some of these folks are still alive. Like the Zapatistas just came down out the mountains like four or five years ago. Like journey to some places if you're privileged enough to do that and you know, talk to folks, go down to the South and talk to those organizers. Um, it's also helpful because it not only does it give you important context and, and understanding, but it makes you feel less alone to oh, know that, sure. you know, that this work that you're trying to do now, you're not the first one to do it. You're not the only one trying to do it. Um, and it, and you can build community around it. And that all young people think that they're going to be the ones to solve it, you know, and that it's going to happen quickly and that these are the reasons why it didn't happen. I absolutely thought that. I was like, oh, y'all just didn't do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, so be prepared. Um, you know, to be thinking of solutions that are seven generations, you know, that are going to affect the next seven generations that the Lakota teach us. And then, you know, be prepared to be struggling um, or fighting and resisting at the same time that you're, you know, having all the pleasure in the world that you can muster um, for, you know, your lifetime. Well, thank you, Jane. That was great Yay. support for everyone else's call to action. And thank you for answering my call. Thank you, <laughs> Eric. I love you. I love you, too. Calling, 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 calling you. Calling you. I told you. I told you that was a lot. Dream is pretty iconic. So much information there. And many thanks to her for taking the time to come on what was a very busy day to chat with us. This episode was produced by Samara Brigger. The Call is a production of Man Repeller, and I'm your host, Erica Williams-Simon. Until next time, keep working, keep fighting, keep dreaming, and of course, keep answering your call. Peace, y'all. Calling, 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 calling.